Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons of England. My name is Simon Chaplin. I'm the director of the Hunterian Museum, and it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight. Before I do so, let me remind you this is the third in a series of lectures designed to reflect upon the history of anatomy and anatomy teaching, uh, a theme that we hit upon because of the work the college is doing at, mo at the moment to provide a new facility for teaching anatomy and surgery for a current generation of surgeons. While you've been sitting here, the slides which have been running have shown you something about the Eagle Project, a very ambitious project on a part of the college to completely transform the way in which we teach surgery. Uh, I hope that you'll be able to lend your support to the project. If you would like to know more about it, there are some brochures describing the project, and please do pick one up on the way out. Now, our lecture this evening is not on the teaching of anatomy per se, but on one of the most interesting aspects of anatomy, namely the relationship between artists and anatomists. Our speaker this evening, I suspect, is well known to many of you. Uh, it's a pleasure to see so many people here tonight, and I suspect that uh, Professor Harold Ellis uh, has drawn many of you here. For those of you who don't know him, Professor Ellis was Professor of Surgery at uh, Westminster Hospital. He retired in 1989. I say retired, I use the word very loosely. Since then, he's been as active as, as ever, and he is still a teacher of anatomy at Guy's Hospital. On top of that, he is also one of the many uh, senior fellows of the college who helps out in the Hunterian Museum, and we're very grateful to have his assistance. So with no further ado, please let me welcome Professor Harold Ellis. Ladies and gentlemen, Simon, after that introduction, I can hardly wait to hear myself speak. There's no doubt that the primitive man, having found that he can draw with a piece of charcoal or with his finger dipped into some red clay on a flat piece of stone or on the wall of his cave, started to delineate the beauty and the mystery of the human and animal form. And as he did it, he couldn't help but be interested in the anatomy of his subjects. And he couldn't really help, as he drew his colleagues and the animals that they were hunting, to delineate uh, abnormalities, pathologies, uh, uh, disabilities, defects. At the same time, they became interested, therefore, in the form of man. The artist became interested in anatomy. At the same time, of course, the primitive, inverted commas, doctors of those days, the witch doctors, the shamans, whatever you like to call them, were also interested in the anatomy of the human form in order to study its functions in an attempt, to, of course, to help their fellow men. And the very first evidence that we've got of primitive man drawing pathology uh, was discovered in a cave in the Pyrenees. Uh, it was a drawing, it says here, uh, dated about 4000 BC. This wretched little man, painted on a rock in eastern Spain, is trying to pull out one of the arrows. Well, it says wretched little man, but speaking now as an anatomist, I would say it's a wretched little woman. 
Uh, many years ago, uh, I went to Cairo with the British Medical Association, and they arranged a wonderful uh, visit to the Cairo Museum. I'm sure many of you in this uh, audience have been there. And I was just amazed at the amount of pathology uh, that the ancient Egyptians depicted in their base reliefs, in their murals, and in their statues. Uh, an achondroplastic in base relief. And I saw numerous little figurines of achondroplasia, this uh, quite common uh, congenital abnormality in which the head and the trunk develop normally, uh, but the limbs are stunted. It's a, it's a common form of dwarfism. Uh, it's interesting, of course, that there's a species of dog that's got this condition, the Dachshund, that's got a long body and a normal head and little stumpy limbs. What else did I find there? A warrior with an umbilical hernia. Uh, an interesting statue of a young man uh, with this deformity of the spine, a kyphosis, this angulation of the spine. Almost certainly, I would think, tuberculous, because there are many, many uh, specimens of the numerous skeletons that have been excavated that show gross tuberculosis in these uh, young men and women. Uh, a fascinating uh, a base relief of a patient with poliomyelitis. Couldn't be, I could, I could use this chap in the fellowship exam. Uh, the wasted, crippled limb shrunken uh, with this uh, equinus deformity, uh, with the stick to support him. And I love this, uh, this picture of a circumcision scene. Circumcision, I think, was probably invented by the ancient Egyptians. They obviously taught their Israelite slaves, and of course, circumcision is now standard in the Jewish community. Of course, no anesthetic, so here's the anesthetist. All he's doing is holding the chap still. Here, there's no, there's no anesthetist, and the patient is just saying, now look, careful, old chap. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that pretty? Uh, so coming to more recent inverted comma time, over and over again, we see artists depicting anatomical anomalies, pathologies, uh, knowingly or unknowingly. This is a lovely little painting uh, of Emily Bronte, the great... Uh, writer of the Bronte family by her, by her, her, her less distinguished brother, Bramwell. It's a beautiful picture, it's a sweet picture. The girl's dying of tuberculosis. She's completely wasted, and she's got this very typical malar flush, this flush of the cheeks, which made the tuberculous patient so, so beautiful, poor things. Uh, Rossetti was absolutely kinky about girls with pubertal enlargement of the thyroid. And uh, he must have found these girls uh, and persuaded them to paint them. I, I, I use this in my lecture on thyroid disease. Uh, and uh, here, this lovely medieval paint painting by this distinguished uh, artist, whose name I can never pronounce, of age and youth. Lovely painting, and he's particularly picked for his subject of age a man with rhinophyma, this great 
bulbous red enlargement of the nose of old age. And you remember your Shakespeare, uh, Henry the Fourth, Part One, Bardolph with his red swollen nose like a like a red beacon. Go up to the Hunter Museum. Many of you will know this. And Hunter, not only John Hunter, not only collected vast numbers of pathological specimens, but he was very interested in collecting paintings of anatomical anomalies. The fattest man in England at that time. He's got competitors today. Uh, again, an achondroplastic. You see how artists are fascinated uh, by this particular form of uh, dwarfism with the normal body, the normal head, the little arms and legs. And the girl with vitiligo, this extraordinary condition of depigmentation of the skin, which is extremely common in the Asian subcontinent. This is a little black girl with this condition. And here's Rowlandson, again, fascinated by anatomical anomalies. And he's, and he's done this lovely sketch of Byrne or O'Byrne, the Irish giant who used to earn a living by exhibiting himself uh, to the public. Uh, when he died, Hunter wanted him. And uh, he ended up as a skeleton in the Hunterian Museum. Now, for decades, when I used to come and visit the museum and bring visitors around, he was exhibited alongside the American giant. Uh, when the Hunterian Museum was temporarily closed so that it could be refurbished, when it opened again, to my horror, uh, uh, O'Byrne, the Irish giant, was all by himself. Uh, the reason is that our American cousins, when we showed them round, used to get very upset when I used to say to them, this is the Irish giant. And this little puny, I mean, insignificant chap is the American giant. And do you know, they used to say, no, 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 it must be a mistake. This must be the Irish giant, and this must be the American giant. No, 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 look at the label down there. You see, so the, the president, who's a very kind, gentle man, uh, decided that the, the American should go down and disappear into the basement. Uh, this is Lowry's famous painting uh, uh, of uh, the cripples. Uh, it comes from uh, the Lowry Museum, and sadly, the Lowry Museum won't allow uh, color slides. They would only let me have this black and white slide, so it loses something. Uh, Lowry obviously scoured the streets of Salford, uh, for, where he lived, of course, uh, for cripples. And again, you could conduct a, I mean, this is, you could conduct an examination, a medical examination of our students with these cases, uh, an above-knee amputation. A well-known ex-serviceman in Salford with an above-knee amputation there and a dis disarticulation at the hip there. Uh, a patient who's got a facial paralysis and paralyzed down one side of the body. Uh, difficult for me to see from here. A patient with a kyphosis, there's another one. Uh, a patient with Marfan syndrome. Uh, a blind man walking along with his dog and his stick. Uh, Clipple-File syndrome uh, with 
torticollis. Oh, I could go on and on and on. So you see this fascination of the artist with uh, anomalies. The, from early days, the artist befriended the anatomist. He wanted to learn his anatomy from the professionals. And we've got many examples of this with these wonderful paintings of anatomical scenes. This is the most famous of all. This is uh, the anatomy class of Dr. Taup. And uh, uh, there's the, the great uh, professor with his keen students, a fresh corpse. Notice all he's done is turned up his sleeves of his shirt. No, no changing. Um, and uh, I think this picture probably, uh, a copy of it, of course, must exist in every anatomy department in the world, certainly everyone I've visited. Uh, uh, another another anatomy class again uh, 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 pictured by uh, Rembrandt. These famous pictures where the 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 anatomist is is delighted to portray uh, anatomical dissections. Again, Rowlandson. Rowlandson visited the uh, dissecting room of William Hunter. William Hunter, as you know, was John Hunter's elder brother. He was the most distinguished man, an obstetrician, distinguished anatomist, who uh, was the man who brought his young brother, John, to London as his assistant. And this shows, uh, again, uh, the, the artist fascinated by the teaching of anatomy. Now, it was really a pretty smelly, unpleasant uh, uh, job in those days. This chap has, has put an apron around himself. Uh, to protect his front. Most of the others are just in their ordinary day clothes. They must have stunk to high heaven. Uh, the corpses, of course, were not preserved in any way, uh, so they began to smell very quickly, I'm sorry to say. And dissections had to be carried out in the winter months because the bodies would go off so quickly, of course, in warm weather. This picture perhaps sums it all up. This is a wonderful painting by uh, Zofany, uh, of the anatomy class at the Royal Academy. So these are the academicians of the Royal Academy attending a class in anatomy to perfect the anatomical accuracy of their portraits. The teacher is none other than the man I've already mentioned to you, William Hunter, who as well as all his other duties was the professor of anatomy at the Royal Academy. And what's he teaching on? The skeleton, because anatomists, uh, so sorry, artists, as well as anatomists, really have to know their, their bones. He's interested, of course, in the anatomy of surface anatomy, what you can uh, study of the muscles, tendons, ligaments, blood vessels, in the living body. So he's got a healthy, strapping young man in his comms to demonstrate this. And this is most interesting. This is an écorché model. And these were very common indeed. The anatomist's job was to take a fresh corpse and skin it, to take off the skin and to take off the underlying connective tissue and fat and so on, leaving the muscles. The, the denuded corpse was then sculpted 
by the artist so that it could be preserved and was used for teaching. And the body, the fresh body, was put in usually into some dramatic uh, pose uh, for the artist to copy. Here, dramatic like this. A very common one was to put the body into the crucifixion position. So the ecoche model would be a crucified body, of course, because, a na because the artist was so often, as you, as you know from going to any art gallery, interested in, in painting the crucifixion. Another dramatic pose uh, was the dying gladiator, the chap lying on the ground supporting his body uh, semi-upright. Semi uh, these ecorche models. Now, you will still see little ecorche models in many schools of anatomy and in many artist studios. So now, let's go back. I've told you about the artist throughout the ages being fascinated by anatomy, indeed needing anatomy. And indeed, to this day, there's a professor of anatomy at the Royal Academy, and it's the only job I've never succeeded in getting. <laughs> so now, what about the anatomist needing the artist, the other side of the coin? What's so interesting is that for centuries, the anatomy textbooks, my gosh, they were deadly dull, simply consisted of manuscripts. Before the age of printing, of course, they had to be written out uh, by hand. And there was just page after page, hundreds, thousands of sheets of anatomy description. Well, just imagine learning any science subject without an illustration. Imagine learning any, imagine studying botany without a picture, studying zoology without a picture. For goodness sake, studying anatomy just with the written word. And if I tell you that the numerous volumes of anatomy by Galen, who we'll be mentioning again, uh, that Greek who worked in Rome, uh, who was really the father, I suppose, of modern medicine, uh, whose anatomy books were not illustrated, but were used as the standard text uh, from, the, from the beginning of the Christian era right up into the 16th century treated not just as a textbook, uh, but as a Bible. Now, a few of the manuscripts have got anatomical illustrations, one or two, and they are crude. They look like a schoolboy's scribble. Uh, this comes from a Persian manuscript on obstetrics uh, uh, of about 1400. It's primitive. In fact, I really can't identify, I suppose that's the heart, I suppose that's the lungs. I suppose that's the esophagus and the stomach. What these blobs are, I have no idea. There's a little bit of intestine. Oh, that's the rectum, I know that. And there's this blob, which is the pregnant uterus, uh, with a very elderly-looking Persian child sitting in the breech position. My goodness. Uh, your, your comment on the fact that the, that the subject is in this strange squatting position. Well, one of the greatest advances in science, the thing that really shot things forward, uh, was sometime in the 15th century, 
when printing was invented. Now at last, books, of course, could be produced uh, in mass and much more cheaply. And at once, uh, illustrations started to creep into the printed books. But still, they were terribly crude. Here again is an uh, uh, extraordinarily poor uh, picture from an obstetrical text uh, of a woman, uh, in, uh, uh, of a pregnant woman. There's the little uterus with a little fetus in it. And I, here, I tell you, I must say, if one of my medical students produced this, he would, he would fail. <laughs> uh, you may wonder, you see, why these two pictures are both, one, one from Persia, this one from Germany, why they're in this strange squatting position. The reason is that this was the position that most women were delivered in. The women were delivered on an obstetrical chair. They were sat on a chair with a hole in it, you see, like a low chair, sat down. The woman would, would hold on to a colleague on each side, and the midwife would crouch down here and deliver the, the, the child from the bottom of the obstetrical chair. Hence this picture. Well, let's look at some other crude illustrations of those times. This is 1493. You see, it's, it's horrible, isn't it? I mean, you know, a, a, a youngster could do better than that. I mean, I won't point out the dozens and dozens of terrible mistakes in this, in this illustration. They're, they're awful. Even worse, I mean, there's no muscle that does that. <laughs> terrible. Uh, again, this was the turn of the 16th century. Then an extraordinary thing happened. I told you that, of course, printing was an enormous step forward. The enormous step forward uh, that took place in, uh, in anatomy from the time of Galen, just at the end of the before the beginning of the Christian era, uh, right through uh, was this chap, Andreas Vesalius. Uh, now, Vesalius uh, was born in Brussels. Uh, he studied in uh, Louvain, the University of Louvain, and then he went to uh, Paris, which was a great center uh, for anatomical teaching, and then went to Padua. And he must have been absolutely brilliant, because at the age of 24, uh, he was appointed professor of, of anatomy in the University of Padua, which was undoubtedly one of the leading universities with Oxford, Cambridge, Paris, uh, in, uh, in the civilized world. <clears throat> so he was appointed at 24, which is the age of most young house officers that you see in a hospital today. He was a, an extraordinary chap uh, because he really revolutionized uh, the approach of the professor of anatomy to the teaching of anatomy. Up to that time, uh, the great professor sat in his professorial chair, the cathedra, up there somewhere. The body was brought in down there, and the porter uh, would open the body with a knife, while the great professor read out Galen, usually in the original Latin while the students wrote down copious notes. And he would often read the, he'd be so busy reading the book, he'd hardly see 
what was actually being demonstrated in the dissection. Now, Galen said that the kidneys are lobulated. If you go along to the butcher's shop and you ask the butcher to show you some pig kidneys, they're lobulated like that. Galen, because bodies, uh, human dissection was frowned upon and it was rare for Galen to have the opportunity of seeing a human dissection, Galen did his anatomy studies on the pig and on the Barbary ape. And his theory behind it was that anatomy is anatomy is anatomy. If that's what the kidney looks like in the Barbary ape, that's what it looks like in you, ma'am. If that's what the, the stomach looks like in a pig, that's what it looks like in you, sir. There's no need to go doing these very difficult human dissections. So the great professor would read out the book, you see, notice, gentlemen, that the kidney is lobulated. The porter would bring out a perfectly smooth human kidney, and the students would write down, notice that the kidney is lobulated. It's amazing how blind you can be. We all know the story of the emperor's new robes. Hmm? If you tell a lie, Hitler said, if you tell a lie often and loudly enough, everybody will believe you. So, so Vesalius, this young boy, revolutionized teaching because he, did, he was the chap that dissected the human body. He did. And the, there the students scribbling down as fast as they can. And he'd say, notice, gentlemen, the kidney is as smooth as a baby's bottom. Don't believe everything you read in Galen. And in his book, which we're going to talk about, The Fabrica, he describes 200 uh, observations that Galen made which were wrong, which Vesalius showed are, are correct in the human body. <laughs> Among other things, he did a terrible thing. He showed that it isn't true that men have only got 11 ribs and women have got 12. Because from the Bible times onwards, it says men, since the days of Adam, when God took a rib from Adam to make Eve, so men from then onwards. Now, you've only got to get undressed to look at yourself in the mirror and count, you gentlemen, and when you get home tonight, you'll find you've got 12 ribs on each side. So there's Vesalius, this remarkable chap, uh, actually dissecting. He was a good dissector. He was a hard worker. Uh, within three or four years, he produced a most wonderful series of anatomical drawings, printed, of course, now the printing was freely available, called the tabulae sex, the six tables. They're absolutely beautiful, with a lot of description along the side of it. Uh, they're beautiful because the, they were paint, they were drawn from life, or I should say from death, uh, by a wonderful artist called uh, Nicholas Kalkar. Actually, I should say Nicholas of Kalkar. You know, the names in those days came from your village. Kalkar was, Nicholas was born in the little town of Kalkar, so he was Nicholas of Kalkar. We call him Nicholas Kalkar. Leonardo da Vinci, his name was Leonardo, we'll be talking about him soon. He was born in the little town of Vinci, so he became Le Leonardo da Vinci, Leonardo of Vinci. Anyhow, let's not bother about that. The great thing about the tabulae sex were these wonderful, wonderful drawings in complete contrast to those terrible, crude jobs 
some examples of which I've showed you. And it was Nicholas Calcart, who, was a, who, who himself came from the lowlands, from what is now Holland, uh, who had trained under Titian. He was a man in his 40s, an established artist, who worked with uh, Vesalius and produced these wonderful drawings. And Vesalius, in his foreword to the tabulized sex, says, you know, the whole beauty of this, I have to acknowledge the fact, I've got this wonderful chap, Nicholas of Calcar, doing the drawings for me. Okay. By the time he w Vesalius was 29, 29, he published the greatest text uh, that there's been in uh, anatomical history, the Fabrica, the Fabrica de Humani Corpora, the fabric of the human body. It created a, 29 years of age, it created a sensation. It was reprinted and reprinted, translated, it spread across the Western world. And this is the famous frontispiece of the first edition. There's Vesalius, there's the corpse, and it's full of interest. The porters, who used to do the dissection, they're relegated under the table here to sharpen the knives. That's, their, that's the job of the porter. Get on with your portering. Uh, it's difficult for me to see at this angle, but over here somewhere is a dog, and over there somewhere is a monkey, because bodies were still difficult to come by. And if there wasn't a convenient body, Vesalius was perfectly happy to teach the anatomy of the dog or the anatomy of the ape or the anatomy of anything else that came about. Uh, there's a barrier there. On this side of the barrier are the students and the doctors coming to see the great man at work. On that side of the barrier are the visitors. And I've no doubt many of the visitors here are artists who want to come and learn their anatomy. Uh, Vesalius was very keen on the anatomy of the human skeleton, so there's a skeleton, and he also emphasized the importance of surface anatomy. So there's a naked man, no doubt used in the class to demonstrate surface anatomy. Just like years later, there's William Hunter demonstrating surface anatomy and skeletal anatomy to the artists. Now, there's I'm going to go forward one. I'm just going to show you some of the beautiful pictures in the Fabrica. They are absolutely stunning. First of all, they're anatomically completely accurate. There are one or two little errors that have been spotted, but they're, they're minimal. They're wonderful. I've used uh, illustrations from the Fabrica in my lectures because they're so good. And you see, they're dead bodies but the artist has put them into these wonderful living positions with a beautiful background behind. So who was the artist? Because 50%, 60% of the value of the book was the artistry, was the wonderful first time these marvelous drawings of, uh, of, of, of anatomy. And, and uh, Vesalius doesn't mention who has, oh, here's not. Let me just show you this one. Beautiful, absolutely wonderful. With with a bit of, uh, no doubt, a bit of Padua in the background there. Wonderful. Uh, 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 you, could, you could put this. You could frame this and put it in your bathroom. Uh, now 
he doesn't mention anywhere. I'd like to acknowledge the fact that, that, uh, that uh, X did these wonderful drawings, or X and Y did these wonderful drawings. There's a lot of argument. It is believed, it is believed that Nicholas of Calcar did the drawings. Why not Nicholas of Calcar, just three or four years ago, before, had produced these sensational, best-selling tabulae sex? Clearly acknowledged, you know, I'm so glad that I've got this wonderful artist to do it. And now, if you, I'll have to go here. That funny little chap with the sort of hat over his head there, that little chap there has been identified from other pictures, would you believe? That's Nicholas of Calcar. And the amazing thing is, in the second edition of the Fabrica, he's been blotted out. Isn't that incredible? It's, they probably had a terrible row. Calcar probably said, you're not paying me enough royalties. And he's been, he's been airbrushed out. Isn't that interesting? <coughs> so these wonderful pictures. Now, very quickly afterwards, people jumped on the bandwagon. There was a very famous uh, anatomist in Padua called Eustatio, after which the Eustatio, who described the Eustatian tube in the ear. And uh, he produced an atlas uh, 10 years later, uh, 1855. Uh, 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 um, uh, uh, not bad, not bad. I don't, I don't think this is a patch on the fabric, but it's, it's anatomically perfectly usable. Uh, uh, his, uh, his drawing of the central nervous, uh, the nerves and the brain and so on, very good indeed. Very good indeed. So other people uh, followed in the wake of, uh, of, of uh, Vesalius. Now, of course, this year uh, we're celebrating, and you've, many of you have seen the exhibition in the, in the library here. If not, do go and see it. It's 150 years since the first edition of the second most famous anatomical text in the world, Gray's Anatomy, uh, 1858. It's now 150 years. Uh, and there it is, Anatomy Descriptive and Surgical by Henry Gray. Uh, lecture in anatomy, St. George's Hospital, and he at least acknowledges H.V. Carter, Henry Van Dyke Carter, another St. George's graduate who did the drawings, uh, late demonstrator in anatomy, St. George's, the dissections jointly by the author and Dr. Carter. So everybody remembers Henry Gray. Now, the text of Gray's Anatomy is, is, is very sound. It's very sound. Uh, straightforward. Uh, fairly readable. But the greatness of Gray's Anatomy, the thing that sold it, were the absolute wonderful pictures. And the pictures were by Carter. Let me just show you uh, one or two examples from, from the original Gray's Anatomy. They're absolutely gorgeous. They're works of art. And it was Carter who, in, who devised this very clever way of putting in small, but very, when you're looking at the text, it's easy to read, 
small but very easily read script, the labelling directly on most of the structures. One or two little things he had to put pointers to, but most of it went on to the structure. You see, beautiful. Lovely. Now let's just go back to poor old Carter. He really got a raw deal. Uh, he, was a, he was a wonderful man. Gray got out a second edition and then developed smallpox. It was a tragic business. He nursed his nephew who had smallpox, who survived. Gray caught smallpox from his nephew and died. In 1858, long after Jenner and vaccination, Henry Gray had been vaccinated as a child. He shouldn't have caught smallpox. And I, I can only believe that when he was vaccinated, uh, the vaccination didn't take. Anyhow, poor Gray died after the second edition. Uh, uh, Carter got a very raw deal. Uh, first of all, he was paid £150 for all those wonderful pictures. Having done all the dissections, most of the dissections, having done all the drawings, £150, Gray's deal was £150 per thousand copies of the book. Good deal. Henry Gray then wrote a monograph on the spleen, on the anatomy and, and, and functions of the spleen, which you'll see up in the library. Beautiful pictures drawn by poor old Carter, who didn't get a cent, A, and B, isn't even mentioned. There's nowhere. If you look through the preface, it doesn't say, I would like to thank my dear friend, Henry Van Dyke Carter, who did all these beautiful pictures, you see, for nothing. Poor chap. He went out to India and became a very distinguished uh, pathologist in India, did some great things there. And you'll see some of his uh, publications, again, in the museum. So poor old Carter is a hero of mine. Now, it's interesting that for many, many years, for many editions, Carter's work persisted. So there's Carter's original illustration of the muscles of the back. Uh, Ellis bought, I bought Gray's Anatomy when I went up to Oxford in 1943. Mine was a wartime edition that came out in 1941. And here's uh, my uh, illustration of the muscles of the back. Same thing, except now they've been a bit of colour's been put in, modern technology. So there we are. Artists get a raw deal, by and large, from their anatomists. Now let me tell you, uh, let's have a look, oh, I must hurry up. Let me tell you a, a might-have-been story. Let me tell you about Leonardo da Vinci. Well, of course, extraordinary man. Uh, here we are, born in Vinci, 1452. He was illegitimate. His father was a young lawyer, but took great interest in, in, in his illegitimate son and arranged for him to be educated. He, as a boy, he was obviously a talented artist. Uh, he worked in many centers in Italy and in France. And of course, he did everything. He was an artist, a sculptor, a musician, architect, etc., etc., and an anatomist, which is what we're going to talk about. Of course, artist. I'm sure she's got a squint, you know. And could the fact that enigmatic smile be due to the fact that she had horrible teeth? 
Who can tell? Of course, the engineer and the artist, this extraordinary apparatus for an enormous bow and arrow. Fortifications, beautifully drawn, of course. And then he carried out, like so many other artists, were not just interested in watching the anatomist dissect. Michelangelo, for example, undoubtedly dissected corpses. And we certainly know, whatever else, that he dissected a child, he dissected an old man of a hundred, another old man, a fetus, uh, and a head, uh, but perhaps, and perhaps a leg, but probably many others, but he certainly attended many dissections. And the drawings he made uh, were remarkable. And he studied, of course, being an artist, he was very interested in muscles and muscle actions. Notice that not only did he dissect or study human muscles, he was interested in comparative anatomy. Here's a horse. Beautiful dissections, some of them with anatomical anomalies. For example, this is undoubtedly a fetus at or near term, but this is completely inaccurate. The placenta here is not a, the usual placenta that we see in a human, in a woman. The placenta, the cotyledons are covering the whole of the uterus, which is what you see in the cow. So here's Leonardo doing a Galen, saying, well, if it's in the cow, it's probably the same in the woman. <clears throat> now, his uh, anatomy, he made anatomical contributions. Uh, the maxillary antrum, Oh, a good hundred years before the Englishman Nathaniel Highmore discovered it. Uh, we, we, to this day, we call it the antrum of Highmore. It's, it's the thing in, in your cheekbone there that, that gets involved when you get a terrible attack of sinusitis. He did sections of the uh, leg. He, he uh, invented sexual anatomy. He demonstrated the cerebral ventricles. I'll show you this in a minute. And as I've shown you, he was very interested and did a lot of work on the functional anatomy of muscles. So here's his dissection. You see, there's a skull split open, and there's the maxillary antrum that gets infected uh, when you have sinusitis, drawn 100 years before Nathaniel Highmore. And I was so impressed with this uh, that I actually used it on one of the editions of my, uh, uh, of my textbook of anatomy. There's the same picture. And they said, oh, Harold, you're so old-fashioned. Let's put something modern on the next edition. I can't, I can't argue with my publishers. Here's the very first illustration of sectional, sectional anatomy. Taken a leg, cut sections through it, and showed this lovely, these lovely views. Uh, it wasn't until recent times when we've got CT scans cutting sections through the body that sectional anatomy became revived. Uh, he injected the ox brain, the ventricles in the ox brain, with wax, peeled away the brain tissue, and showed these great big spaces full of fluid uh, demonstrated for the first time and drawn there. Of course, he had a strange idea uh, of that the ventricles were where uh, all the functions of the brain actually took place. And he thought the brain itself 
was just sort of protective tissue around it. So Leonardo made a great mistake there, of course. Now, what could have been is this, that Leonardo, when he was in Milan, worked for several years with a brilliant young anatomist uh, called uh, Marcantonio, brilliant young man. And it, there is no doubt that they were working together to produce a textbook of anatomy with Marcantonio doing the dissections and Leonardo doing the drawings. And we've got this letter. Leonardo has compiled a special treatise on anatomy with pictorial demonstrations of limbs such as never been made by any person. And he said that he had dissected more than 30 bodies of men and women of all ages. Probably what he meant there was Marcantonio was dissecting 30 bodies and he was drawing them. Mark Antonio then got the plague and died. The book was never published. Now, would it have been fun? You see, 1543, uh, publication of the, uh, of, uh, the famous Vesalius, uh, the Fabrica. Now, supposing 25 years before Leonardo and Mark Antonio, who produced their textbook. Would, would anybody read Vesalius? Who knows? What's interesting is that those t anatomical drawings disappeared. When he died, they went to one of his uh, artist uh, uh, trainees. They were dispersed. And for some extraordinary reason, they got into the Royal Collection at Windsor. And they were certainly there by 1690, you see, 110 years later. And they were in a great, thank goodness, they were in a great big box over in the corner somewhere with nobody noticing they were there. And then they were discovered again. Uh, originally there were 779. By the 19th century, when the box was reopened, there were 600 sheets. And it's only recently, since World War II, that these wonderful pictures have come onto the market. There was a, it's been some wonderful exhibitions. They're, they're in the, the Queen's Royal Collection at Windsor, but they're often put on exhibition. Most recently, uh, they were exhibited at the, gosh, where did I go? One of the big museums in London. So you'll see them there. Now, to finish, I must tell you uh, that uh, the association of artists and anatomists goes on today. Uh, I was writing my first book uh, on anatomy uh, in uh, 1958, exactly 50 years ago. And uh, the beauty of the book was that I had two wonderful women artists helping me. I was, a, I was the surgical tutor in Oxford at the Radcliffe Infirmary, and the two artists at the Radcliffe were Miss McClarty uh, and Miss Arnott. They were two rather elderly ladies, spinsters, and they were wonderful. They were wonderful. And how we worked it out was I would make a drawing of what I wanted, you see, and I'd go over to the office and I'd give it to Miss McClarty, who did most of the work, and Faye McClarty would then draw up my picture, you see, and then I'd go over and check it through and say, that's fine, put it to the publisher. So I, I did a sketch of the larynx, you see, and I gave it to Miss McClarty, 
and she produced the most wonderful, wonderful picture of the larynx I'd ever seen. It was beautiful. It was a work of art. And I thought, There's some, this, is, this is better than anything I've ever seen. And then I said, Faye, what are all these nerves and blood vessels running over the larynx? There aren't any there. She said, I know. But it's so naked without it. I said, I'm, ter I'm, ter I'm terribly sorry. This is the way God made it. So she took a rubber, and she was very upset indeed, and carefully rubbed it off. So this miserable larynx, which has got no charm about it at all, is still in the, is still in the 11th edition. Uh, even worse than that, I did a drawing of the, the very complicated muscles and ligaments of the sole of the foot. Really, it's, it's a student's nightmare. Uh, I gave it to Faye, and she produced... I've never... Everything just stood out. Stood out. I could see everything. I, thought, this is I took it away. And I thought, it's funny. Let's have another look at it. I took it back, and I said, Faye, the tendon of peroneus longus there doesn't go over everything, it goes under everything. He said, I know, I know, but you can't see it there. <laughs> so, so any of you in the audience who are going to write a book, choose a good artist, choose a good artist, acknowledge the artist in your book in big letters, but watch, watch them like a hawk. Thank you very much. Well, given the, uh, the numbers we have here this evening, um, I think that our a question and answer session would be a little bit difficult. In particular, the library staff have very kindly agreed to reopen the library for another 20 minutes for those of you who haven't had a chance to see either the exhibition about Gray's Anatomy or the exhibition of other anatomical works from our collection, which have been put on just for this evening. So for those of you who do have questions, Professor Ellis has said he's happy to stay around for a few minutes to answer them individually. Uh, for the rest of you, um, please do take the opportunity to go and visit the library while it's open. The Gray's Anatomy exhibition is on for a few more weeks, but the other works are exhibited for this evening only. Now, before we finish, let me just remind you we have two more lectures coming up in the series. On the Thursday, the 15th of May, uh, a talk on the Dread Table, Public Dissection at Surgeon's Hall. Um, since we couldn't find anybody else who was willing to speak after Professor Ellis, it's me that's giving that one. Um, we have our last lecture in the series on Thursday, the 12th of June, by Professor Vishi Mahadevan, who's the Barber's Reader in Anatomy here at the Royal College of Surgeons, and his title is Anatomical Dissection, Is It Still Relevant to Surgical Training? So that will be the last lecture in the series, bringing things right up to date. Uh, two final things. One is we've given out some evaluation forms. We take evaluation of our events very seriously. Uh, as part of our commitment as a college to continuing professional development for surgeons, uh, the evaluation forms will be fed back into Professor Ellis's record and uh, will go down uh, there. So any cause for improvement will be duly noted and corrective training will be applied. So please to take a moment to fill in the evaluation forms. Uh, the last thing is that Whoever had ticket number 78 
in the cloakroom. You no longer have it, I do. Um, if you would like your ticket back, please reclaim it from me. Otherwise, I should be giving away the possessions of ticket number 78 at the end of the evening. With that, let me thank again Professor Ellis for a wonderfully entertaining talk, and thank you all very much for coming.